morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I'm going to start. Okay. I, uh, I told Angie, I'm going to have to work on reining this sermon in. I think I've done pretty good, but I, I am going to start with the intro now. So it doesn't feel so long later. He didn't say he thinks he's doing pretty good. He said, I didn't cut it too much. I cut it. I cut it. It's going to be long. I edited it. It's, but it's okay. I think, cause we're going back and forth with the story. I think, I think it'll feel brisk and I'll talk at a rapid pace so it doesn't take forever. Um, but, um, we're going to talk about journeys and processions today. And sometimes a journey or a task should be quick, especially when it's not particularly meaningful. So if you need to run errands to town, it's good that Westlock's only 10 minutes away. If you need a bag of frozen peas from the freezer in the basement, you can take the steps two or three at a time. It doesn't need to be drawn out. If you're heading to visit family in a different province, well, praise God for the miracle of flight, which allows us to land in Hamilton in under four hours. Because sometimes you don't want the trip drawn out. Other times, however, the situation calls for a certain amount of drawing out. We're so lucky to be able to cover the 3,500 kilometers between Edmonton and Hamilton before lunch. That's, we live in a pretty amazing age that we can do that. But as you know, I love taking the long four-day drive out east and back. I've done so four or five times. I, I, I savor the sights of the prairies and the Canadian Shield and the lakes and the, the forests. I soak in all the music and podcasts I can handle. I survive off cheeseburgers and Costco gas and hotel hot tubs, and it's just glorious. Those long... Di- <laughs> oh, thank you, Sharon and Bob. <laughs> I missed live laughter. Can't wait for August 15th. Um, but those long-distance drives are always a real highlight of my year. I, I talk about them a lot, and they've led to some of my greatest stretches of prayer and self-reflection and mental health renewal. I love it exactly because it's a long, drawn-out journey. But that's a four-day, long-distance marathon drive covering four provinces and a whole bunch of states. I had the joy of, of recently bearing witness to a very different kind of long, drawn-out journey. It was a journey of only a couple dozen feet. And it was a journey worthy of great celebration. A, a journey that led a beautiful bride into the waiting, overjoyed arms of her beloved husband, escorted under the care of their best friend. It happened a month ago in the sanctuary of Clyde Christian Bible Church, as a radiant Eva was walked down the aisle by Angeline towards Abe, her jubilant husband. And that's not a long journey. You've all been in Clyde Christian Bible Church. From the entranceway to the communion table is not very far in our church. It's not a lengthy journey by any stretch. But Angeline and Eva, the day before, they practiced their... Their slow, measured pace, uh, and it gave the moment the sort of drawn-out sense of importance and elegance and delight that it deserved. Slow strides, beaming smiles, and a few tears. It was journey. It was a journey of only a few feet that is meant to last a lifetime. So, like a long, enjoyable road trip, or like a short, sacred stride down the wedding aisle, some processions are given extra power and extra importance and extra revelation by extending their length. Some journeys are meant to be absorbed slowly and pondered thoroughly, and drawing out the procession allows us to do so. And that's what happens in our passage today. 
It's a road trip of sorts, but one that's less like a wedding celebration and more like a funeral procession. There is uncontrollable weeping, there's waves of regret and uncertainty, and there's a threatened king who flees his royal city under a haze of shame and disloyalty and curses. David is about to undergo a long, drawn-out processional as he runs from the inevitable clash with his usurping son Absalom, who has stolen the hearts of Israel away from his father. But Absalom hasn't stolen every heart. David has to flee, and in doing so, he has to freshly rely on the grace and goodness of the God that he had drifted so far from. But David will also rely on a crafty, cunning sense of initiative that is rooted in the support of those who remain loyal to the anointed king. It's a long procession, hopefully not as long a sermon, but it is a long procession, as David leaves his stronghold in Jerusalem and ends up at the very outermost boundary of his great empire. We're going to see David encounter many different people with many different views on the reigning king and with many different roles to play in David's plan to reclaim his throne. And I hope that we'll learn something about the power of humility and loyalty and victory. But we'll not do so just by looking at David's long drawn out procession and the various people that he meets along the way. Within David's long, sad, drawn out journey away from Jerusalem, there's a sort of foreshadowing of a different long, sad, drawn out procession that a greater king will eventually take towards Jerusalem. In David's long procession and his encounters along the way, we'll be reminded of the power of Jesus' own journey towards the cross. That's my hope today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on this long journey along with David, and we're going to stop to meet six different people. With each person that David meets as he proceeds further from Jerusalem, the plot will thicken, while at the same time we'll be given a portrait of Jesus' own long journey towards Jerusalem. There was never a more powerful procession than Jesus's, and comparing it to David's procession in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 will hopefully lend us some fresh insight into Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. So we're going to start with uh, chapter 15, verses 13 to 18. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom, his rebellious son. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us, and bring ruin upon us, and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. So the king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at a place some distance away. All his men marched past him along with the Carathites and Pelathites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. We'll pause there quickly. This is obviously a sad state of affairs, um, but not one without dignity and authority. David, David had exiled Absalom, then welcomed him home with a forgiving embrace. He then sat by while Absalom's conniving charisma stole the hearts of Israel away from King David. We studied those stories over the past couple weeks, and we found a portrait of our own rebelliousness, our own sinfulness, as well as God's own gracious redemption. Well, here, the rebellion of Absalom gets kicked into full gear. Hearing about it, David rightfully takes the humiliating but necessary steps of fleeing 
while he still has a chance to defend himself and defend his throne. David's warning in verse 14, either flee or fall by the sword, is absolutely true of the ruthless Absalom, who will stop at nothing, not even the deposing and decapitating of his own father, he'll stop at nothing to gain power. And before the sad royal procession even really begins, there are seeds of lessons being planted in these first few verses. Ten concubines are left behind to tend the palace. You may remember that that's actually a signal of doom, that something bad is going to happen. Nathan had prophesied that um, someone in David's own house will publicly shame the king by sleeping with the women of his household in front of all Israel. What David had done in secret with Bathsheba, Absalom will do to David in full view of everyone. The concubines will eventually be the, the undeserving victims of that prophecy. And it's not that that's what God wants. It's just that's what's going to happen to David. And so this procession kicks off. The narrator mentions the concubines who stay behind because this procession will kick off with a sense of judgment on the king, a reminder of his failings. So it starts off with David in a very low place. Also, notice how there are so many foreigners in David's processional party. Most of Israel has gone over to side with Absalom. And there's a lot of foreigners in David's procession. The Carathites and Pelathites and Gittites, they're basically armed mercenaries who were hired from outside of Israel. But these outsiders will remain fiercely loyal to David, even when David's own people, the Israelites, and David's own trusted advisors prove themselves disloyal. Those who are David's people are disloyal, but David can always count on the loyalty of these outsiders, these foreigners, these hired mercenaries. Loyalty is at a premium in this chapter, and outsiders are among those who will prove themselves most faithful. Remember that little nugget that outsiders prove themselves most faithful to the king. Remember that because it will show up later when we talk about the procession of Jesus. But finally, before we move on, I want us to see the response of the king's loyal subjects in verse 14. They say, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. It's more than just a statement of fealty from courtyard servants to an ancient king on the run. It's also an excellent statement of discipleship for those of us who pick up our crosses and choose to follow the footsteps of our true Lord, the King of all kings. We, as servants, must be ready to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to follow him faithfully. It's a lesson that I am learning in abundance these days, and one which all disciples must constantly relearn and reaffirm. We follow our King no matter the circumstances, whether we see him and share the glorious riches of his royal rule, whether life is good, or whether we feel the shameful attacks of those who wish to kick the king off his eternal thrones, or whether we are the ones trying to kick the king off his throne, whether we feel his glory and goodness, or whether we are suffering and hurting. Either way, whatever our Lord Jesus chooses is best, and we servants are called to follow in faith, no matter the trials, no matter the sacrifices, no matter the challenges. We are called to follow where our king leads us. And we're going to see this truth brought powerfully to life in the first man that David will meet on his outward journey, the first of six, in verses 19 to 22. So let's read that. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, say that five times fast, Ittai the Gittite. The king said to Ittai, why should you come along with us? 
Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I am going? Go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, as surely as Yahweh the Lord lives, and as surely as my lord the king David lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. Wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. We haven't met Ittai the Gittite before, but he will be rewarded for his faithful service by later becoming one of David's most trusted and powerful advisors. Ittai is one of these foreigners that I've already mentioned, uh, who only just joined David's forces a day before. David wants to pardon him from service since Ittai has no reason to remain faithful to a king he's never really had a chance to serve. And I understand David's guilt in this situation. Why Why should he make this guy choose a life of exile and fleeing when he owes David no service? So he's, David says to him, return to your homeland, return to your family, count the cost of following me, Ittai, and find that it's not worth it, is what David says to Ittai. Except Ittai does count the cost, and he decides that fleeing in uncertainty with God's anointed one is greater than standing beside a rebellious traitor or skulking back to the life he previously led far from the glory of the king. I'm going to say that again because what's true for Ittai is true for you and me. It's better to live in the uncertainty of the presence of the anointed king than to stand beside a rebellious traitor or return to a life far from the glory of the king. It's better to to be with the king in all that uncertainty than any other option. His statement is such a beautiful one for us as followers of the king as well. As surely as the Lord God lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. I should get that tattooed across my forehead to remind me of what exactly it is that I've signed up for with this Christianity business. Life or death. The life is incredible. Blessings of community and purpose and peace and transformation. The life that we have with our king is a beautiful, good, rich, and satisfying life. But there is also death in following King Jesus. Death to self. Death to certain desires. Death to ego. And for many millions of Christians around the globe, following Jesus means actual physical death and shame and humiliation. And pain. We should all say to Jesus, as Ittai does, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be, but we should not say it lightly. This whole carrying the cross following Jesus thing is life and death together, beautifully so, but count the cost before you make that promise. So Ittai is the first character we meet on this sad processional. He is willing to follow David no matter what, despite being an outsider who's only just arrived. Let's read verses 23 to 29 and meet our next character, Zadok the loyal priest. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. 
Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it as his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Aren't you a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your son Ahimeaz and Jonathan son of Abiathar. You and Abiathar take your two sons with you. I will wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. We'll pause there for now. As David leaves the city, as he moves further from his palace, further from Jerusalem, the sadness deepens. The entire countryside, people who identify with David's shepherdly origins, they all weep for the king. And in the middle of all this grieving, the king makes a truly remarkable decision. It's the kind of decision that indicates the heart for God that once drew all of Israel like a magnet towards David, as they are now drawn to the rebellious Absalom. And along with a remarkably faithful choice, David also concocts a remarkably sly and crafty plan. Zadok, the priest, will serve as David's informant from within Absalom's inner circle. Zadok, in other words, will be David's spy. So that's the cunning strategy. But the most remarkable part of this conversation between David and Zadok is David's faith-filled statement about the Ark of the Covenant. You probably remember way back at the beginning of the books of Samuel, Israel was guilty of treating the Ark like a magic wand or an incantation whose, whose mere presence guaranteed victory. They just thought, hey, we can be as bad as we want. We don't have to obey God. It doesn't matter. We can do whatever. But as long as we, we bring out that Ark of the Covenant to battle, we'll win no matter what. And God's like, uh, no, I demand obedience, not arrogance. And it doesn't work well. It, it doesn't work like that. You can't just trump or bring out the Ark of the Covenant like a trump card and God will have to defeat your enemies. Their arrogance in the light of the Ark's tremendous holiness re resulted in disaster and calamity. The Ark is not a secret weapon. It's merely a reminder of who is truly enthroned above Israel. It's a reminder of an incomprehensible power who is linked by covenantal hesed, um, faithful loving kindness, to this ramshackle collection of tribes known as Israel. The Ark isn't anything special. It's the presence seated on the Ark that is, that is special. And Israel was guilty of forgetting that. And so David refuses to make the same mistake as his, his people Israel had made some 80 or 100 years earlier. The Ark is not David's by right. Other kings would get trapped by that thinking that they own the Ark of the Covenant, that they have control over the Ark. But the Ark and the presence dwelling atop it belongs to no man or no nation. That Ark and the presence dwelling atop it is sacred and sovereign and cannot be controlled in any way by any person. And so David is demonstrating remarkable humility here. He is placing his trust in God's will. He sends the Ark back to Jerusalem knowing that he may never see it again and that if he doesn't ever see it again, it will have meant that his flight from Absalom was divine punishment for David's many sins, and he's willing to accept that. David refuses to cling to the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot. Instead, he marches away from the ark. He sends it back, trusting that he will see it again when he is reinstated by Yahweh, and knowing that if he never sees it again, it will be an act of justice that David deserves. I think that's a remarkable piece of faith from a king who has seemed to worship his self instead of his God of late. 
And so David's meeting with Zadok reveals two things. First of all, David is placing his future, his kingship, and his life completely in the hands of Yahweh. But secondly, he's also taking steps to formulate a plan. He is submissive, but he is also active. He surrenders to God's plan, but refuses to surrender to Absalom's traitorous plot. I think that's awesome. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. He surrenders to God and refuses to surrender to Absalom. He submits, but it's an active submission. For now, we're going to read the next encounter. This one is not a story of loyalty, but of betrayal. And it's a name that we first heard last week. It's just verses 30 and 31. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. So Ahithophel is now the third person we've met. David continues to proceed further and further from Jerusalem and the procession continues to grow in grief and sadness as it goes. Here the setting is the Mount of Olives. Remember that name? We'll come back to that. And here the person we are reintroduced to is Ahithophel, who has sided with Absalom. Ahithophel was likely Bathsheba's dad and has reason to betray David, but he has been one of David's most trusted advisors. And so the loss of Ahithophel is a deep blow to David. It's It's a real kick in the pants while he's down. But again, as with Zadok the priest, we see David entrusting himself to the hands of Yahweh while also taking action. He asks God to turn Ahithophel's wisdom into foolishness, which, spoiler alert, we'll see next week, that's exactly what will happen. David has a plan, but he knows that his plan doesn't matter one bit if it's not also the plan, if it's not also the will of the true king of Israel, Yahweh. And so David submits to God's plan. He asks God, he doesn't demand that God confuse the counsel of Ahithophel. It's likely that this act of humility and submission is what leads to the plan coming to fruition, as Ahithophel, the disloyal traitor, will have his wisdom clouded by the next person we'll meet on David's sad procession from the royal city. Let's meet Hushai the Archite, a loyal friend of the king, in verses 32 to 37. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the Archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will help be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimeaz son of Zadok and Jonathan son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So David's friend Hushai arrived at Jerusalem just as Absalom was entering the city. Hushai demonstrates his great loyalty to David through the deep grief that he exhibits. His robes are torn, there's dust on his head, and those are traditional signs of the brokenness that accompanies deep loss and mourning. The comment on Hushai being a burden seems harsh, but it's simply the pretense for David to open up to his loyal confidant about the plan ahead. Despite great risk to himself personally, Hushai goes along with the plan and will prove himself a crucially important figure 
in the ring of espionage that David will utilize to outflank Absalom's own cunning, power-hungry strategies. Hushai is a crucial spy for David and will prove integral in bringing down Absalom. David needs fighting men in the wilderness with him, but priests and diplomats, they can demonstrate their loyalty in other dangerous ways by serving as double agents and informants for the anointed king, all the while frustrating the plans of his traitorous would-be king's son, Absalom. David lifts Hushai out of his grief by giving him a task, which is what Jesus often does for us. He lifts us out of our lowliness by giving us a job to do. And the job that's given to Hushai is a risky one, but one that will prove pivotal in reinstating the rightful king back to his throne. Hushai then arrives back in the royal city, just as uh, Absalom himself arrives in Jerusalem. Absalom's plot is in full swing, but what he doesn't know is that David's plot is well underway as well. David then continues further from Jerusalem and encounters two more figures that we'll talk about that contrast loyalty and disloyalty. Both men, who you'll meet in chapter 16, are figures from David's past dealings with Saul. These are two men with connections to Saul. Are they ghosts come to haunt David? Well, not literal ghosts, but are they figures from his past come to haunt David? Or are they unexpected sources of rich reward? Or are they some super complicated mixture of blessing and curse? We're going to read the first four verses of chapter 16 and see who we meet, or rather, meet again. It's a guy named Ziba. You might remember him. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. The king then asked, Where is your master's grandson? He doesn't say Saul. He refuses to use Saul's name. And the, the, the master's grandson is Mephibosheth. So he's saying, Where is Mephibosheth? Ziba said to him, He is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, Today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. So... Mephibosheth, Ziba is saying Mephibosheth is staying behind that in all this uproot, in all this turmoil, in all the chaos of a revolt, that maybe the house of Saul will come to power again, and Mephibosheth, being the heir to Saul's throne, will become king. That's what Ziba is saying, Mephibosheth is saying. Then the king said to Ziba, All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. You may remember Ziba from chapter 9. Ziba and Mephibosheth make for a complicated pairing in the book of 2 Samuel. David had promised an oath of hesed, of faithful loving kindness, to Saul's son Jonathan, David's best friend. The promise was for David to care for any remaining members of Jonathan's family once he becomes king. David fulfills this vow through Mephibosheth, Jonathan's only remaining heir, a young crippled man who was welcomed into David's inner circle, even feasting with the king at his table. Ziba was the man who took care of Mephibosheth's flocks and fields with all the profits and prestige that come with that task. Basically, David had shown mercy on Mephibosheth, who was a potential enemy, and Ziba was handsomely rewarded for his service as well. But here, something is wrong. According to Ziba, Mephibosheth has betrayed the king who showed him mercy. By the way, 
In chapter 19, Mephibosheth has a very different account of this story. Uh, In Mephibosheth's telling, he is the victim of Ziba's schemings. The Bible is not interested in demonstrating who's right in this dispute, and likely neither are innocent. But here, David believes Ziba and gives him everything that belongs to Mephibosheth. It's one of the last times David will be able to evoke his royal authority for quite some time. It also comes perilously close to breaking the solemn oath of Hesed that he had made with his best friend Jonathan. Because he he takes away everything from Mephibosheth and gives it to Ziba. So it looks like he's breaking his oath with Jonathan. But if the betrayal is true and David still spares Mephibosheth's life, you could argue that David's Hesed kindness is stronger than ever uh, towards Mephibosheth. But there's lots said in the brief exchange between David and Ziba, but not much of it is said with words. When David asks why Ziba has brought all this gift, all these gifts, Ziba's answer is very obvious. Well, I brought you donkeys so you could ride them, and I brought you food so you could eat it, and I brought you wine so you could drink it. Ziba is artfully dodging the suspicious implication behind David's real question. David's real question is, why are you bringing me these gifts? When David next asks, where is your master? He's subtly reminding everyone who Ziba belongs to. He belongs to the house of Saul, David's former enemy. And the where has less to do with geographic location. He's not saying where in Israel is your is Mephibosheth. What he's really asking is where does he stand politically? Where do Mephibosheth's loyalties lie? In all of this, David, David really only has one question. And the question is this. Whose side are you on, Ziba? Are you with the house of Saul? Or are you with the house of Absalom? Or are you with the house of David? But satisfied with Ziba's answers, David blesses him. And Ziba demonstrates the proper deference and humility before the king. He bows down and thanks him. He asks for the king's favor. Even though David is fleeing, he is still God's anointed king. And Ziba is quick to recognize this authority. However, there is one more character that we get to meet on this procession. One more member of Saul's clan. This last individual is far less quick to recognize the authority of David than any other person David has encountered on this trip so far. Along with Ittai, who is the first person we met on this processional journey, this final encounter is the most fascinating to me. It really demonstrates David's two greatest strengths in this passage and in all of 2 Samuel. First, his selfless faith in Yahweh, and second, his cunning strategy. So let's finish today's reading with verses 5 to 14, and meet the fascinating Shimi. Shimi, sorry. I had to ask a friend of mine who knows Hebrew really well how to pronounce his name, because I, I didn't know if it was Shimei or Shimi, and she tells me it's Shimi, so I'm going to try to pronounce it right. But let's meet Shimi. As King David approached Bahuram, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimi, son of Gira. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel! So this is what he's saying to the king. Get out of here, you man of blood, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? 
If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, then who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more then this Benjamite, this member of Saul's clan, leave him alone, let him curse me, for the Lord has told him to do so. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing that I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Shimei obviously has a major grudge against the king, one that runs back to the events at the beginning of 2 Samuel. David is being blamed for the actions of others. Shimei is saying that David is guilty of all the bloodshed against David's family. Um, but we know that the narrators of 2 Samuel were, were very careful to make it known to us that it's not David to blame. It's men like Abishai, the guy here who's like, hey, you want me to cut off his head? Abishai, earlier in 2 Samuel, he's the one who had killed a member of Saul's inner circle in cold blood. And here he wants to take Shimei's life. Our narrator makes it clear David is not to blame for any of that. It's men like Abishai who are to blame. Shimei, on the other hand, is convinced that all the pain that his family has endured, all the dishonor, having had Saul kicked off the throne, all of that falls on the head of David. All of that pain started when David rose to power. And so it's the king's fault. And Absalom's rebellion, Shimei says, is God's way of repaying David for the injustice that David never actually committed. Now that David is within rock-throwing distance and has been shamed before all Israel, Shimei takes his opportunity to further shame the king with curses and, and dirt and stones. As I mentioned before, David's response is indicative of his cunning strategy and his selfless faith in Yahweh. Let's talk about the strategy first. David already has his hands full with one powerful enemy, and that's his own son, Absalom. He doesn't need more enemies. The last thing he needs is for a strong enemy from the past, the house of Saul, to rise up against him as well. And one member of Saul's house, Ziba, has shown loyalty, we think, but Shimei represents the real threat of disloyalty. So even if David was to allow Abishai to strike down Shimei, all it would do was create another war front for David to face, one with decades of resentment already built up to overflowing. So strategically, he denies Abishai the bloody vengeance he, des he desires and, and thus spares himself from the wrath of Saul's ancestral tribe of Benjamin, whose territory I think he's actually in right now. So it makes sense strategically for David to say, no, 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 leave Shimei alone. Don't strike him down. But this is more than just military strategy. David also denies vengeance on Shimei, despite Shimei's false accusations, for the theological purposes as well. David's reason for allowing the abuse from Saul's family member is pretty profound to me. I, I think it's beautiful and super instructive. David says, if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, then who are we to say, why does he do this? He's just doing what God told him to do. David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more this Benjamite, this member of Saul's family? The members of Saul, Saul's family has all kinds of reasons to want me dead. So leave him alone. Leave Shimei alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do this. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing 
instead of the curses Shami's raining down on me today. Man, I find that response absolutely fascinating and super instructive. Here's the rightful king, David, having hateful accusations rained down on him along with various actual projectiles. He's being cursed and openly shamed by some nobody, and he allows it? Moreover, he sees purpose in it? Doesn't that sound familiar to what Bob read earlier about Jesus on trial being spat on, being clubbed in the head with a crown of thorns? It sounds very similar to me. David understands that he is worthy of cursing and shame because of all the great sin in his life. He knows he's worthy of it. He sees all this pain and hardship in a very healthy way. He thinks, I am deserving and I will still cling to God's will. Even if these curses are deserved, even if these curses will come true, still I will cling to God and his will. But I am trusting that God's long-term plan for me, God's long-term will for me, is one of reinstatement and redemption. I really, really love that attitude. David is at the very boundary of his kingship in more ways than one. He is at the literal border of Israel, the, the far outskirts of Israel, at the very outer edge of his territory. His long, mournful procession has taken him as far away from the throne as possible, geographically, physically. But he is also at the boundary of his kingship in another more important way. David has some choices to make. Does he allow Absalom to take over, thus denying his own God-ordained kingship? No, David won't allow that because that would cross a boundary into a relevance that he does not see in himself. Secondly, does he arrogantly rise up against his traitorous son? No, that would cross a boundary into pride and self-reliance that would certainly, excuse me, certainly end in his destruction. Thirdly, Does he punish disloyal people in one final act of royal justice? No, that will cross a boundary into vengeance and create only more enemies at a time when friendship and loyalty are at a premium. So David will not give up, he will not openly fight back, and he will not cling to vengeance. What then will the king do here at the very boundary of his kingship? He'll do two things. He will trust and he will act. He has the humility of one who knows he's been crushed, and he has the wisdom of one who works towards the will of God. He refuses to take the ark with him, knowing he can't coerce God into favoring him. He refuses to punish Shimei. <laughs> I knew I'd miss it up. Shimei. He refuses to punish Shimei, knowing Shimei's curses of blood and murder are true, although misplaced. He rewards those who are faithful and loyal. He extends his royal authority despite the smallness and sadness of the moment. And he lays the foundations for a non-violent undermining of Absalom's violent revolt. He has a plan based on secret informants and moles and double agents confusing the wisdom of his betrayers. David knows he is a broken, humbled man. He is willing to submit. He grieves knowing that this might be his end. But he also knows that he is God's chosen servant, and he makes plans knowing that if it is God's will, this will not be his end. So he's willing to accept this might be the end, but he makes all these plans trusting it's not the end. And I love that attitude. It's an attitude I need to have more often. David here is a king who weeps and rewards, 
a king who plans and submits. He is forced to put his life in the hands of Yahweh in ways he never has before. David's always been willing to put his hands, his life in the hands of Yahweh. When he was attacking bears who came after his sheep, when he was attacking giants who came after Israel, David was always willing to put his hands, sorry, put his life in the hands of Yahweh. But then he was a little shepherd nobody. He has courage because he has nothing to lose. It's another thing to face down enemies you yourself have created from atop a position of power that you have to give up in order to gain back. David's in a position he's never been in before. A position of power that he has to let go of power in order to retain power. In the loyal background characters who we met like Ittai, Zadok, Hushai, and Ziba, we see a reflection of David's own faithful trust in his king, Yahweh. Following God, whether it means life or death, shame or glory, David will follow. But in the disloyal background characters like Ahithophel and Shemi, we see a reflection of David's own broken sinfulness. David has himself been a, a, a rebel who has cursed God with his behavior. We see David's own broken sinfulness. We also see his willingness to trust that by taking the fall now, he will be raised up to glory again later. It's a long, humbling, painful procession that David takes to the very edge of his ability to serve as king. And as he moves further from Jerusalem, the prospect of once again ruling in glory gets dimmer and dimmer, even as David plants the seeds that will one day bring victory. And man, oh man, do I ever love that as a portrait of our king, Jesus Christ. You know what? It's noon. Do you want me to take a break now and we'll do part two next week and I'll explain how this long procession is like the procession Jesus takes towards Jerusalem? I still got three more pages. Oh. I said it would be quick. I lied to your face, church. I'm sorry. Um, why don't we take a break there? I hope in the glimpses we got of David's attitude, I hope there's enough meat there for you to chew on. David is willing to submit, but he refuses to submit to the evil plan that's going on around him. David is willing to accept God's will, even if that means lowliness and brokenness. He's willing to accept that. But he's also making a plan, trusting that God will one day redeem him and reinstate him. I love David's attitude here. And in his long procession to away from Jerusalem, away from glory... I think next week we'll see a really beautiful portrait of Jesus' own long procession towards Jerusalem, towards suffering, towards loss of glory that will, like David, lead to redemption and reinstatement. So I hope there was enough to chew on just in, in like the stories of Ittai and Shemi. I think there's a lot of, of profound um, truth there. But we'll get to the really good stuff next week. For now, let's pray to our king. God, thank you uh, that you are a king who redeems and reinstates. God, we, like David, are worthy of, of all the shame that he's experiencing. We're worthy of all the lowness. Um, we deserve to be far from your glory, but you don't want that for us. You, you never want that for your children. In the same way that David is willing to submit to you, I pray that we would submit to you knowing that in submission, there is glory and goodness. There is redemption and reinstatement. I, I pray that I pray that we would trust in your will, that we would experience your glory, uh, and that we would uh, plan ahead, that we would take action 
towards, um, towards you and your kingdom. Help us to cling to you, God, in the same way David clings to you in this story. I pray all these things in the name of the King Jesus. Amen. Quite a story. David's attitude is completely different from it was in when he was grabbing people and abusing people and using people. His, his attitude is very different here, which is good. So, like I mentioned, um, we'll see what all of this has to do with Jesus, which is my favorite thing to do in all of First and Second Samuel. I love, 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 love connecting these stories of the lesser King David to the, the stories of the greater King Jesus. And we'll do that next week. But you are free. You are released on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Um, enjoy. Even if these curses will come true, still I will cling to God and his will. But I am trusting that God's long-term will for me is one of reinstatement and redemption. What then will the king do here at the very boundary of his kingship? He will trust and he will act. Wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be.